2: In 2017, a hashtag on Twitter became a rallying cry for women all over the world.
0: It happened to me too. Me too. It happened to me too. And it happened to me too.
2: That autumn, a spreadsheet shared online alleged that Parliament itself had not been immune from sexual misconduct. Far from it.
1: Mr Speaker, members on both sides of the House have been deeply concerned about allegations of harassment and mistreatment here in Westminster.
2: It led to the Sunday Times taking on a four-year legal fight, which has only just concluded, to defend the right to report a woman's allegation of rape against a powerful man. But to expose these stories can be a precarious business and can sometimes come at a huge cost.
1: We need to be assured that we can defend a story like this before we publish. Because the the sparks start flying pretty quickly.
2: Today, one of the UK's top media lawyers takes us through one case and what it could mean for a review into the legislation governing libel laws. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today the MP who tried to gag the press. Could you just introduce yourself? What job it is that you do? What that job actually means?
1: My name's Pia Tharmer and I'm the editorial legal director at The Times and The Sunday Times. So I look after journalists and advise editors on the content of their articles, stories, interviews that go into the paper, and I defend the newspaper once those stories have been published.
2: We're here today to talk about the the Charlie Elphick story, which is a complicated but rather distressing story with pretty large implications for people who want public accountability. So why don't we start back in November 2017 where this story began?
1: So going back to November 2017, the woman in this particular story, Jane, was one of the many women who was moved to do something about her earlier experiences She had been working as a parliamentary researcher and she worked with Charlie Elphick at one point in her early career.
2: Charlie Elphick at that time was the Conservative MP for Dover and had been a government whip. We should also say that, as you've probably guessed, Jane is not the woman's real name.
1: And around that time, there was the Westminster List published. So it was a list of MPs who had been accused of sexual impropriety. It wasn't seen as necessarily true, but it caused such an outpouring of, of tension amongst MPs and it really upped the ante after the Harvey Weinstein scandal had exploded. And it, we really saw a huge number of women coming forward to the newspaper as well at that time with stories to tell about people in power whom they felt that they needed to talk about.
2: Sorry, so this is at the height of the Me Too movement, as it's just kind of getting started. And this is a list compiled by who?
1: Well, it was compiled anonymously. There were several contributors. And no-one verified all the contents of it, but it became just so well-known. It was distributed on social media, and the press started talking about it too. It's a scandal which is engulfing Westminster... Young women who work there, forced to put together and share amongst themselves lists of MPs who sexually harass them. And it's threatening to go all the way to the very top.
2: Which is normally a very dangerous moment for us in the press, isn't it?
1: It is, because there are rumours circulating. It's all incredibly interesting. You're looking for the most high profile names on it. Um, and you want to know who's, who's guilty and who's not. And all the rumours that have been circulating for months, if not years, suddenly really come to a head.
2: The journalist's reaction is to think there may be something in this, but we have to be cautious. But it actually starts something with this particular woman, doesn't it?
1: She tries to speak to the chief whip. She knows, and this is very interesting, that Charlie Alphick has been suspended and has had his whip removed. Last night, the new Tory chief whip said Mr Elphick had been suspended following serious allegations that have been referred to the police. And he said, shortly after this, that he didn't know what he'd been accused of. In a tweet, Mr Elphick wrote, the party tipped off the press before telling me of my suspension. I am not aware of what the alleged claims are and deny any wrongdoing. So in amongst the thick of this... Jane goes to the Tory whips' office. She tries to phone them. She doesn't get through. She goes to them and one of the whips takes her down to Scotland Yard.
2: Right. So so this is a really brave thing in the first place because she actually has to physically go to the whips' office. Do we have a name for this whip?
1: Stuart Andrew.
2: So Stuart Andrew takes her down to Scotland Yard, which is absolutely the correct thing to do, isn't it?
1: We don't know what their thinking was at the time, but it is the proper thing to refer allegations which could amount to criminality to the police. And her allegation was very serious. It was a criminal allegation, it was an allegation of rape.
2: So she goes to Scotland Yard and talks to the police. Um, um, What happens then?
1: She takes with her a note that she's written on an iPad, which is really quite detailed. And she then tries to recount the same story to officers in the presence of this MP, which we now know as a newspaper was a very difficult thing for her to do. Over the next few months, she puts together a witness statement explaining exactly what it was that had happened to her, including an allegation of rape. Now, one of the difficult things that she encountered, and this is what she told us, was that she found it very hard to put it into words. She found it very hard to use the word rape. And she wasn't herself sure of what rape really meant. So what she was trying to do was just explain what had happened. And another thing she did, which I think is I've learnt is very common with women who are the victims of any assault, she was blaming herself and she was scared she would not be believed. So she told us that her experience with the police was very difficult indeed. She wasn't happy with what the police did. She didn't think that when they drew up a statement for her that it reflected what she'd actually said.
2: So what did she do then?
1: About a month later, she approached one of our reporters, through a friend actually, and the reporter was asked to meet somebody He is told in that meeting that there is an interesting story about Mr Alphick and he begins to dig, as journalists do. And soon he gets pretty much the full story. He speaks to them over a series of weeks. He takes a statement. He asks questions to try and understand what really happened. And then, in April 2018... The Sunday Times published three articles.
0: Police quiz Tory
2: MP Charlie Elphick after two women alleged sex crime. A Conservative MP suspended by his party is under police investigation for alleged sexual offences involving two female members of his staff. The Sunday Times can reveal. Police failed to tell Tory MP Charlie Elphick about rape claim. Female aide made allegation
1: five months ago. Scotland Yard was last night facing questions over his handling of a rape allegation made against a senior Conservative MP by a female former member of his staff. A Tory MP is accused of rape and no-one stirs. Police delays and secrecy are adding to the distress of both parties.
2: Now, what did the paper reveal in these articles?
1: The first one was reporting that Alfick had been suspended, revisiting that, but saying that he had been charged with sexual assaults. Now, we then realised that these were not sexual assaults against the woman that we were working with, but this was a story in its own right. Nobody had actually reported that. The second week, we report the big story, which is that Charlie Alfick has been accused of rape by a woman, but that he doesn't even know. So our story was the police had not told a Tory MP that he'd been accused of rape. And we put it in the context of the fact that he'd been suspended, that the Me Too scandal was whirling. We told the story about how she'd gone down to the whip's office, how she'd gone to Scotland Yard. But then, what a mystery. Mr Alfick isn't even told by police that this woman had accused him of rape.
2: So, now, we've run the stories... Um, Pierre, what were you worried about at that stage as the legal
1: director? An allegation of rape could not be more serious on the sexual assaults sort of scale, if you like. You are upping the ante hugely by taking it from week one of sexual assaults to rape. You're also alleging a very serious criminal offence against a very high profile person, somebody who once held the Tory whip, a, a sitting MP until he was suspended. And you're a newspaper which has a reputation. So there's a lot to lose. This is a front page story. You need the story either to be true or to, to be defensible in law. And there's another way of defending something which isn't true. And that's to say it was substantially in the public interest. We need to be assured that we can defend a story like this before we publish. Because the the sparks start flying pretty quickly after we've published, as happened in this story.
2: And that's partially because the person so accused in the story is going to be able to make a case quite easily that his reputation has been significantly lowered as a consequence of the story.
1: Yeah, it's it's what you call a no-brainer. You accuse somebody of rape, their reputation has certainly been damaged. <laughs> and it's That's the bar, that's the threshold for him, any claimant. All they have to say is, my reputation has been damaged and the fact that they are damaged almost is certain. And it's for a publisher, it's for a newspaper to then have to prove the truth or show why they published the story. So all the onus is on us. All they have to do is fire out that letter. And you can see it's the first thing you do if you're sitting in high office, if you've got everything to lose the first thing you do is get lawyers on board.
2: Okay. So you had to be sure when advising the paper to go ahead with the story, essentially, that it was true to the extent that you had all your ducks in a row. In other words, you could produce the evidence that you had available.
1: You have to be fairly sure that you can prove the truth. You are never entirely sure, especially with a story like this where, let's face it, at the end of the day, what's true? What, What do we know to be true? How do you decide what is true? I'm not a judge. The newspaper cannot sit as a judge. We have to use instinct, judgment, journalistic inquiry, legal inquiry and analysis. While certainly for a journalist, trying to keep the trust of the individual you're talking to. Now, the individual in this instance is a very good example, as are all the Me Too complainants, of somebody who has a very, very strong belief and will actually be very distressed and hurt if they don't feel that they're being believed. But you've got to be dispassionate as a lawyer. You've got to step back and say... I can't believe you here because I need to make a separate assessment. I also need to account and allow for a future assessment of your credibility. So that's going to be by my legal team. And eventually, potentially, if we get sued by a court. So I have to try and second guess what a judge is going to say. So that could be quite different from my personal instincts.
2: So were you expecting Elphick to take legal proceedings against the Sunday Times?
1: I did expect it, yes.
2: Now, in what form does somebody like Elphick uh, and his lawyers, what form does their threat of legal action take initially? What do you actually get?
1: Got it in front of me. What you get is a letter (laughs) by email that drops into your inbox shortly after you have published, written on their formal paper. Usually, when they're being serious, it says, this letter is written pursuant to the Pre-Action Protocol for Defamation. And it's got the name of their client right at the top. And it says, not for publication. It's addressed to me. And that is the letter in which they set out the articles that they're complaining of. They say that the articles are defamatory. And they ask you to take the article down, to publish an apology and to pay damages, to pay a sum of money to compensate their clients for, and in this circumstance, for the severe injury to reputation and great distress he has suffered and to pay their legal costs. And they ask for a response within 14 days. So this letter is the starting gun.
2: And what was your response?
1: Well, like with all of these, you want to be able to fire off a response saying nothing doing, but you can't do that until you really have revisited everything you did before publication. There's a very different tempo here. Before publication, you are in some ways rushing to a deadline. You are thinking, how long will the witness stay with us? Is is she or he prepared to go through with this? You want to publish the story while there's still all that goodwill going. So there is a self-imposed deadline there for a newspaper. Post-publication, you've got 14 days, but you know that you've only got one chance because if you don't if you've made a mistake, you have to correct it pretty damn quickly. But if you haven't made a mistake, you also are firing a starting gun, and I mean all these terrible mixed metaphors. But you know the gloves are off, and this is going to be the beginning of the battle.
2: Now this is what, in impolite circles, we might call a brown trouser
1: moment, because we
2: <laughs> b- because it's always possible something will happen. And just to get it clear, what the stakes are, if you had discovered that there was something wrong with the story, that could mean a lot of money.
1: For this kind of libel, you're looking at £150,000 in damages. You're looking for costs in the region. Well, if it's a quick settlement of at least £50,000. So you're looking at a quarter of a million straight out, I think.
2: And a loss of reputation for the paper because it's had to apologise on what was a very big story.
1: Crucially, there would be a grovelling apology. And nowadays, claimants push for an apology to be on the front page. It's certainly every editor's worst nightmare.
2: Now, let's just go back a little bit because as this case is being threatened, the criminal investigation into sexual assault charges is going on. Now, can you just fill us in, what was Elphick charged with and what happened in the
1: case? He was charged with three counts of sexual assault against two other women. Now, women, anyone who has been the victim of a sexual assault, is entitled to anonymity. So we don't know who they are. We do know from the subsequent trial that one was a former nanny, and we do know that the other one worked with him in his parliamentary office. So these are sexual assault. They were, we found out through the trial, they were allegations of groping, sexual misconduct in that sense.
2: Facing a criminal trial, he did not stand for re-election in the 2019 general election. But his estranged wife, Natalie Elphick, was selected by local Conservatives to succeed him and she was elected in his place.
1: He faced trial in the summer of 2020. He was convicted in July 2020. A jury convicted him unanimously of attacking a woman at his home in 2007 where he kissed and groped her before chasing her around the property, chanting about how naughty he was. Then four years ago, two more assaults on a young parliamentary worker who described his repeated attempts to kiss her as a disgusting, slobbery mess. And sentenced in September that year to two years. He actually served one year in the end, but he was sentenced to two years. He tried to overturn his sentencing and appeal his his conviction in fact but the the assessment of the judge was damning the judge said that he'd abused his power he'd abused his position in Westminster and that he was a liar he was dishonest he'd lied to the court he'd lied to the police he'd lied to his wife
0: Coming
2: up, you might think a criminal conviction and prison sentence would mean the end of the defamation case against the Sunday Times. Well, no. But first...
1: I'm Emma Tucker, editor of the Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with the Times and the Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
2: As we've heard, in 2020, the ex-Tory MP Charlie Elphick is found guilty of sexual assault on two women. However, this conviction does not include the allegation of rape by Jane, and the Sunday Times must still defend itself in the ongoing defamation case. Jane's evidence is central.
1: I met her many, many times. I remember first meeting her, because it was shortly before my son was born. And... We'd agreed to meet for a coffee and I wanted to meet her because I wanted to I wanted to see what sort of person she was. And the reporter, Gabriel.
2: That's Gabriel Pogrand, Whitehall editor at the Sunday Times.
1: Did a brilliant job. He, he'd spent relatively little time with her before, before we published the story, actually. And I think out of a deference to the difficult situation, he didn't want to go into huge detail with her. And he'd made us an assessment of her credibility. And because I wanted to eventually file a truth defence, I had to meet the witness for myself. And I met her and it was very compelling. And it's always very interesting as a lawyer, because as I said, you've got to be dispassionate. But I met her. I was heavily pregnant over a coffee in Victoria, somewhere near Victoria Station, and she—the story just came tumbling out. And I really remember it because she said to me, "I think I've told you more than I told Gabriel."
2: Maybe because you were a woman too.
1: Possibly because I was a woman. Possibly because the story had already been published, and she felt that that had released her voice—that this voice that had been suppressed for so long or felt that it didn't have anywhere to go had been liberated in some way through that newspaper report. Was there any
2: point at which you thought she might want to back out?
1: On several occasions I thought she, she might want to back out. I employed a very, very good criminal barrister. We don't always do that. I I needed somebody else to give me an assessment of a witness like this. A witness like this, as I have learnt, goes on and off the boil. Sometimes they are powered by the deep-seated injustice they feel. And other times they're just terrified. And when they're terrified, you in the driving seat of the legal department of a newspaper, you think, well, why are they terrified? Am I running too big a risk here? Are they terrified because this is all a bit of a show and they're losing the guts to bring this man down is it, it are they going to be painted as you know a vengeful jilted ex that's the classic way of depicting a woman sadly and is that going to win because she's going to collapse as a witness so i spoke to a very good criminal barrister louise oakley louise met her separately from me i didn't say anything to louise about my assessment of jane and louise made an assessment of the way in which Jane had approached this case, the same one as I had made. So I had some reassurance that we were right to trust her. I'm not saying we believed her. Who knows what the truth is? But the truth almost is not a matter for us. The question is whether we back this story or whether we apologise to Elphic or not.
2: I know you're being dispassionate, but the strong impression I'm getting, and you may not want to answer this, is that actually, yes, you just did believe her.
1: I think my instinct as a human being was I did believe her. Um, obviously, Alfic maintains his innocence, but I think it spurs you on as a lawyer, despite the fact that you are not meant to take a view. You know, judges do it too. They're all human. There's something instinctively that responds to a set of facts, to, to somebody talking to you. And that's perhaps what happened here.
2: Now, if the libel case ended up in court, if they pursued it all the way, was there a possibility she would actually have to testify in front of that court?
1: Yeah, so we ran two defences. One was truth and the other one was public interest journalism. So section four of the Defamation Act offers a defence where you believe that you publish a statement which is in the public interest. So we put that one up, but we also put up the what I call the purest defence, truth. And that absolutely required her to take the stand. And she had to produce a witness statement. And we couldn't even file our defence until we had taken a full, what's called a proof of evidence from her. Now, this is showing our tools of the trade, I'm divulging <laughs> secrets here, but we we sat in a room with her. I wasn't actually in the room because I, I gave this to, to our barrister to create some distance uh, and to protect Jane actually from future questions about whether I had been their newspaper lawyer making her say things that she didn't want to say. So I asked Louise to do it. Louise asked her a series of questions and we recorded it. And I was sitting outside going, God, I hope she goes through with this because she's extremely nervous. But I I think instinctively, I really thought she would do it because she was such a, such a strong woman, terrified, but so strong. And she did it. And by seven o'clock that evening, I phoned RQC and said, I've got it. I've got her proof. I'm not sure he believed that we would get it. And I said, we're late to file the defence, but we need to file it now. Can you please start writing? And he started drafting and we could file that defence.
2: Now, I imagine it made a difference to you who, in your in your estimation about what you're facing, who exactly was representing Charlie Elphick and the terms on which they were representing him. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Very well-known claimant lawyers. I have a lot of respect for them. They are super lawyers. High-profile, wealthy individuals on the most part – But they also act for them on what's known as a conditional fee arrangement. And I have a problem with this. They act on a no-win, no-fee basis. So the claimant has nothing to lose financially. Whereas a defendant, small or large, has an awful lot to lose. The Sunday Times is a big organisation. I am lucky enough to be able to fight the cases which I, with, with a super legal team, will always be able to assess and then we go back to the editor and we say this one is worth defending smaller organizations don't have that privilege and the no win no fee arrangement works because the claimant doesn't have to pay for his legal costs or her legal costs even if they lose because they're insured against them and the way that the legal system works in this country if you lose a legal claim a libel claim you've got to pay the other side's fees with this situation, they're insured against even that. So even if he'd lost and had to pay our legal fees, he's insured against that. So where, where are they really exposed? They're not.
2: Then, at the end of March this year, just like that, Charlie Elphick drops his claim against the Sunday Times.
1: This was one of those wonderful moments. I was, I'd had two or three conversations with my outside lawyers. We are six weeks from trial. We have had... Lots of correspondence with Carter Ruck. Everyone's gearing up. And, you know, this is the last time you've got to review whether you pursue or not. I'm all for pursuing, but we're assessing all the time. And into my email drops a letter from Carter Ruck saying that this had, this case hasn't been resolved any other way. So it's not been resolved by mediation, by friendly, amicable solutions. We're gunning towards trial. Mr. Alphick feels that it's not right and he wants to drop the claim in its entirety. He discontinued the claim. and I was absolutely amazed, absolutely amazed. This never happens.
2: (laughs) So why do you think they
1: dropped it? Well, I suppose I'll never know the full story, but I know that in terms of the chronology of events, we had filed witness statements just a few days before and we got letters from them pretty shortly after that. I can't say what they said, but somebody on their side will have made an assessment of the strengths in the case and then decided that he was going to discontinue.
2: Now, it should be said that Carter Ruck made a statement on behalf of Elphick, which you might just want to read out for
1: us. They spoke on behalf of their client and said that he wished to make it absolutely clear that while he has discontinued the legal action, he entirely refutes the allegations made against him and he considers that the articles, including the headlines, are not simply misleading, they contain serious untruths.
2: How much... Did it cost the whole thing in the end? How much did the Sunday Times have to pay? And is it going to get the money back?
1: So in total, the Sunday Times has spent just over half a million pounds, more like £600,000, defending this claim. It's entitled to recover all of that money. It may well not, because we understand that Mr alphick is not financially strong, but we will wait and see.
2: So it'd be Mr Elphick would have to pay it back. Carter Ruck, they've gone. They've disappeared off the scene. Any financial settlement is with Charlie Elphick.
1: That's right. It's entirely his liability.
2: Most media, or a lot of media organisations, and particularly small ones, you made the point earlier, simply don't have £600,000 that they could venture on something like this. Would a small organisation just not have had to have settled much earlier, or indeed, quite possibly, have said to Jane, terribly sorry, believe your story, but it's too risky for us.
1: I think it's the latter. I think these stories don't see light of day because they're too risky, because the prospect of a legal suit is is awful. If you, They've got to weigh that up. Do we do it and then retract, or we just not do it at all? Well, just not doing it at all obviously makes more sense because you can't just keep retracting and apologising.
2: Is there any system that you could imagine that would both allow somebody who genuinely thought that they had been traduced to bring their case but also did not put people at such financial hazard when they are trying to tell a story that they think is true or important?
1: So I think this story about Jane really, for me, highlights some of the changes that we could see happen in libel laws. My big wish list would be to have the onus on the defendant shifted. So the burden of proof is no longer on us. The claimant's got to put up the evidence too, right at the beginning. We're not going to get a First Amendment style freedom of speech, constitutional protection as they have in in America. But I think there could be changes. I think there could be a different way of managing cases. So there's an assessment earlier on. And I think this issue about conditional fee arrangements and how claimant lawyers assess whether they should take them on also is something that can be looked at. There is so much scope here for reform of the law. And I think the the review that's happening now on anti-SLAP legislation is an opportunity for this.
2: You better tell us what SLAP stands for.
1: Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. So this is abusive or vexatious claims which are brought in court. I'm not saying that Elphick's claim was necessarily that, but claims which are stumbling on in court, we see them a lot, where people say that they're trying to vindicate their reputation. But what they're really trying to do is stop the press from saying any more and don't publish any more stories like that. And don't anyone else publish stories like that. Those are abusive. There should be some protection for stories which are being muffled in that way. And there's a campaign currently which has been really charged up by the, by the behaviour of some oligarchs, to try and get some legislation which would look after publications which face this kind of aggressive behaviour.
2: And last week, the European Commission announced proposals to protect journalists and campaigners against these so-called slaps. We don't yet know if the UK will follow. But in March, the government launched an urgent consultation into the litigation tactic, so it's possible. So that's what we in newspapers and media organisations face. But uh, what about Jane? I mean, how how is she now?
1: She is so relieved. She couldn't believe it when I told her that he had dropped his claim. It could not be a better outcome for her. She was... Living this every day. And regardless of what she told us was true or not, she was showing every sign of taking the witness stand sometime this year and dreading the prospect of having to give evidence about this, having to go through everything she'd told firstly, the whip's office, then the police, then Gabriel, then me, then another barrister, time and time again. And she would have been cross-examined by a judge and she was gearing up for that but she was so relieved that she didn't have to do that and I cannot imagine how cathartic that whole process must have been actually for her because she, she said that it had been and she said that she had lived with this for four years through the pandemic, through changes in her own life and working with people she doesn't really know and suddenly it's all dropped away she's relieved she's relieved
2: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of the Times and the Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, editorial legal director at the Times and the Sunday Times, Pierre Sama. You can find Gabriel Pogran's original reporting on this story at thetimes.co.uk, and we've put links in the episode description. The producer was Sam Chantarasak, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to stories of our times at times.co.uk. See you tomorrow.
0: Hold up.